Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the inland Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together, we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. Today we're here with Chris Eckhart on Eckhart Farms. Really excited to be out visiting with you today, Chris. Thanks so much for having me out. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for coming out. Um, we're glad to have you here for sure. Thank you. Um, I, there is some wheat country up here north of Spokane. That's Amongst great. the houses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And the trees. Right? Yeah. Yep. Um, would you share a bit about yourself, your farm, and who you farm with? Yeah, so we're primarily a small grain farm north of Spokane, and we're a dry land grain farm. So wheat, barley, canola, we do have a little bit of, you know, permanent hay ground in rotation. And uh, yeah, we're, we're a small operation, so we're right around 2,000 acres, and farm that uh, with my wife, my kids, my mom and dad, so. Great. Um, is, this, is this the family farm, or are you... Yeah, I grew up here, actually, yep. yep. We're the first ones here. So we have, you know, roots in Elmira and Bonners Ferry. So so fifth generation in the United States. But uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so we're second, like, technically, I guess, third generation right here where our farm is at. Okay. Yeah. And your farm here um, is outside of Deer Park? Yeah, so we're, we're north of... Uh, Spokane, south of Deer Park, a little ways, and you know, as far as rainfall goes, we're annual crop. We we used to do summer fallow, but uh, we're pretty much just you know annual crops now. Uh, we consider doing fallow uh, from time to time, just based on the rainfall. We're kind of right on that cusp. Uh, some people will say you know we're in a 16, 18 inch rainfall zone. It seems more like mm, anywhere from eight to 12. So, and that makes it sometimes challenging, especially on the lighter ground, you know, when it comes to getting a decent crop that year. So, yeah. well, and as a soil scientist, of course, I have to look at all the pine trees and think about what is your soil like here and yeah. how, and the range and how that might differ across the range that you're farming. Acidic, <laughs> acidic and sandy for sure. So, uh, we, we do have, you know, some moderate clay type soils that sustain, you know, better crops, but it is definitely one of our biggest resource concerns is moisture from year to year, for sure. So June rains seem to determine a lot on yield factors just about every year. And then getting crops established enough going into the next winter is a big determining factor for us too. So do we get those September rains to get our recrop going? Uh, last year was a really tough year. So it came up under the snow and did not come out of winter very well. Moisture concerns in Eastern Washington. Right. I'm shocked. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you open open the gate right out right right here at the beginning um, when you mentioned that your soil is acidic. Do, yeah. Do you want to share anything about those numbers uh, or range? You know, I mean, we've seen into the fours on stuff, but uh, we're we're feeling fortunate if we're ever getting into you know five sevens five eights like that's that's really good for us in our area so a lot of, a lot of soil in five two to five four range okay are you doing anything are you thinking about managing for acidity at all or are you doing anything for that at this point no um basically just because of logistics and lime mm -hmm. uh, yeah. a lot of liming to compensate for that in our area and we seem to be doing fairly well versus the ground that has been lime. There's been there's been lime ex experiments that have gone on in our area with very limited results and whether it just went on heavy enough, I, I'm not sure about that. If it maybe, you know, maybe just didn't go on heavy enough. Maybe instead of, you know, my neighbor, he did, I think it was up to almost three tons an acre. You know, maybe he needed to go four and that would have been the magical tipping point for him. But again, you know, just resources of where we're getting that lime from and he, he thought that maybe the sugar beet lime that he was using at the time probably wasn't the best quality lime either but it, it definitely comes down to logistics and trucking and that, all of that just isn't 
cheap here you got to make it you know feasible and you know to take wheat ground to turn it from you know 50 bushel ground into 60 bushel ground you're still limited on rainfall um, trying to make things pencil out is tough so it's it's better if you can just figure out how to you know grow a good crop i think and increase organic matter those have been the biggest determining factors for us when i looked at soil where we've, we've grown good crops versus not so good crops organic matter was a big tell on that and so we've really focused on trying to increase organic matter so i guess i just you know put in a plug with some of the wsu extension resources and and with liming um if that is ever something you consider on as part of something you want to play with um you know there's resources on testing for your buffer capacity which might be mm -hmm. on the lower end if you have um sandy soils but if you've got lots of organic matter input um that affects it meaningfully. And then um, just the how much lime to apply question is something that we've tried to answer with the body of work on the Wheat and Small Grains website um, under soil resources. So a little plug for that. And so um, would you describe some of your management goals and how they might be different by between your whole farm versus by crop, by field, and by year? And if yep. they are different or, or how you drive some of those management choices day to day? In our area, you know, we're really limited on rainfall. We're not in an irrigated area. So we're, we're never really going for top yield as far as that goes. We're really trying to manage input costs in our area and basically create the best net profit we can per acre. And so a lot of that comes down to managing, you know, uh, fertilizer inputs, chemical inputs, and still trying to get, you know, a, a maximum yield out for what those inputs are, but we're never going for, you know, a max yield or trying to out yield our neighbor per se. And also on that, we're also trying to protect our soil health going forward too. So we know that, you know, there's a lot of antagonistic effects that will happen if you are trying to, you know, say fertilize for top yield. But if I can maybe, you know, cut back say 10, 20% on a fertilizer input to maybe not salt out my soils as heavily, protect organic matter, those kind of things, that actually helps me out net a better profit into those following years. So those are factors that we're taking into consideration just because we have such sensitive soils in our area and you know the limited rainfall where we're at too. Feel free to answer this one or not, yeah. but um, how many landlords do you have? Uh, right now, like 42. Okay. Yeah. So not as, not as many as some in our area. So I got, I got a friend that I think has over a hundred. Like and, Dusty Walsh on yeah, the previous yeah, episode who yeah. nominated you. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know how he manages that, but uh, that's one thing where we've had to, you know, set aside more time just to go and have these conversations. You, you can't be as friendly as you want to be with everybody on, on some of that. And so a lot of the people we got, Honestly, I mean, of the 42 landlords, we got, most of them are all super cool people. So uh, we, we don't we don't farm for them unless we have a good relationship with them. And we, they seem to be pretty understanding and, and uh, we've created great relationships going forward, so. Well, it sounds like you're in a position where you're really thinking about investing a lot in the ground that you're working on, so. Yeah, yeah, they like knowing, they like seeing the cover crops. People always ask questions about the cover crops we're doing, they love seeing that. You know, when's our field gonna be in a cover crop? And uh, those are those are fun conversations to have. You know, what is that growing out there? And you know, oh my gosh, there's so many bugs and so many butterflies and the birds love it. And um, we love the wildlife and yeah, so. Fun stuff. Sounds like it's a good sell on the front end. How do you justify that on the, the other end of that, if you want to speak to that? Oh, I knew you were going to ask that question too. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we've gone forward, like it, it's one of those things where the more you know, the more you don't know. Um, we started experimenting with the cover crops and we have places where we've put cover crops in where we still see the results in the crops that are growing today from where we had the cover crops to align with it was a part of a field you know we've been able to see it and then we've had cover crop failures along the way too where it's just like was that worth it was that you know i mean where we burned up moisture and this is one of those years where the cover crop did not turn out how i wanted it to it's it's not not putting on the growth that it wanted to and it comes down to a management situation where I knew what I grew last year but I didn't look at what I grew two years ago out there 
And turns out two years ago was 2021. We had canola out there and we were trying to manage that canola uh, very intensively to try and still get a crop out of it to, to then not really have much of a crop either. And uh, we had um, basically um, Beyond and Chlorpyrolid out there in that field on what is a sandier ground. This is a 150 acre field that we were trying to manage weeds in our canola in really intensively at the time too. So we were, we were going a full rate and then had our winter wheat the following year after that. And if you look at the label, I mean, there's a 22 month minimum plant back interval on that. And we're seeing a lot of that chemical sensitivity in the cover crop this year. And so it's just not taking off like it usually did. So this big gangbuster cover crop, we're going to have some Dusty's cows, you know, graze on part of it. And it just is stunned at the growth on it. We're like, holy cow, you know, this is, you know, not turning out how I wanted it to. So we're going to have his cows on, you know, a, a better portion of the field, but um, the, just, you know, antagonistic effects where you're trying to protect the crop, you know, one year is coming back to bite you two years later on something where, um, I just, that was a management thing. I needed to go back farther in the records and, and see what it is that we did and, and, you know, what could have potentially been an issue, but as you're making decisions and, you know, spring work's coming along and you're just, you know, making all these decisions kind of on the fly of how you're going to rotate things around. You're like, oh yeah, that's, that's an issue I didn't think about, but, uh, you didn't take time to bioassay that field. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Not a bioassay on the field. No. So we, we did a 150 acre bioassay. Yeah. You just did it right on the field scale. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Super. That's always fun. Yeah. Um, didn't they just relabel a herbicide a bit for the PNW? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it used to be like 18 months and then they, they bumped it up to 22 and especially in the sandier soil. And that's what we saw in the, in the part of the field, the upper part of the field where it was sandier soil the cover crop is just not doing cover crop things. So it's there, you know, and it's six inches to a foot tall, uh, but we should be seeing this stuff explode right now and it's just not. So we had to, you know, we're, we're planned to do the grazing at, we, we expanded that and kind of shifted that where we're gonna do it some. And so the cows have, you know, good grass and Dusty's cover crop mix, we added um, sorghum Sudan and millet to it uh, so that the cows would have some good grass and stuff in there. And, and it turns out, you know, we're, we're beyond the, the plant back interval in that area. And that was in the heavier soil. That's, that's looking definitely better, but in the sandier soil, the chemical just didn't break down in that long of a time period. So just like what the label says. So you should read the labels. Well, we read the labels, but you I know, mean you, just as, a, as a general best practice, yeah. when you're doing on farm trials, it's a good idea oh, to make sure you're absolutely, uh, following yeah. those things. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, on the sandier soils, those those chemicals are definitely persisting. So especially with limited rainfall, we got quite a bit of snow last year too. But whether all of it went in the ground, I don't know. Yeah, yep. I'm sorry. It definitely sounds like an unintended consequence. <laughs> uh, yeah. One yeah. of one of the things that I was sent here to ask you though is what is in your cover crop mix? Yeah, so we've been staying pretty consistent with this mix of uh, radishes, turnips, phacelia, sunflowers mung beans, cow peas, field peas, um, sweet clover. And, you know, primarily like when we were looking at things and we were trying to address a resource concern in our field, we're dealing with, you know, years of um, plow pans and, and um, you know, the same type of crops, wheat on wheat on wheat rotations. And the radishes were something that we saw really breaking up those hard pans for us. Those roots going down, you know, four or five feet, pulling up nutrients from, you know, years gone past, you know, stuff that the weed just wouldn't go down and get anymore and having really good results after having these radishes out there. But the radishes do better if we have a lot of other stuff with it. It seems like just a, we've done a straight cover crop of radishes. It didn't turn out that well. Um, and when you plant a diverse mix, one thing I'd tell, you know, listeners on this podcast is, do, do a whole field of cover crop and see what happens, you know, because most of the pollutes I think is pretty varying soil types, varying terrain. And if they put a pretty diverse mix out there, you know, get your brassicas. I, I've kept grasses out of my mix just from a management standpoint, but do some cool seasons, do some warm seasons, 
and uh, you know do some legumes do some brassicas don't put a cover crop in just to fix nitrogen you know focus on you know breaking up a hard pan or you know creating you know biological diversity or something like that in your soil besides just fixing nitrogen because of all the guys i've heard you know we did we you know we did field peas we did clover you know it it failed it burned up moisture do something diverse and get get a big mix out there and i think you'll be amazed at what you see take off in different parts of the field i remember specifically in one you know 42 acre piece that we had that had you know bottom ground in it all the way up to you know sandy soil and in one part of the field, I mean, the, the sweet clover was as high as the hood on the tractor. Another place, the sunflowers were growing like crazy in it. Another place, the phacelia was going like, growing like crazy in it. It was all seeded at the same depth at the same time. But I believe, in my understanding, that every part of the field needed something different. Every part of the field had a different, you know, problem going on with it. It had a different uh, benefit that it offered. And those cover crops were expressing that in different areas. The wheat crop following that cover crop that year was one of the most even wheat crops we've ever grown in that field. And I think a lot of it had to do with that cover crop in um, basically e evening out what, what was going on out there. So that's the best way that I can describe what happened. But I couldn't have gone out there and picked, oh yeah, we need sweet clover in that part of the field. We need you know, radishes in this part of the field and sunflowers in that part of the field to make it better. You, you can't do that. And so... What I learned from that is when I, when I talked with people that have done different things with cover crops, they said, yeah, there's, you know, those different plants have different organic acids in the root tips and they're able to go and pull nutrients, you know, out of the soil that your, your wheat plant can't get. And when it dies and decomposes, it'll, it'll release that nutrient, you know, basically on top of soil, it'll be available the next year for those plants. And whether that was molybdenum or copper or something like that that was so tied up in that soil or so bound up that a wheat plant couldn't access now it could the next year and it, it followed along with you know the secession of nature kind of how that works too i've got three follow-up questions probably well i've got a <laughs> lot of follow-up questions but i have to keep them limited okay yeah um for in the interest of time but um okay agronomy questions when do you plant your cover crop uh, well, actually, I've got another one. When you plant your cover crop, what do you seed it with and how do you terminate it? Yeah, those are great questions. So we've gone really, really early and really, really late with the cover crops and I still don't have figured out when the right time is. So one year I gave up on doing a cover crop and a buddy of mine convinced me still to do it in the 15th of July. And I'm going, no way. This was in 2021, an incredibly dry year. He goes, just seed it deep enough to where you could find moisture and just see what happens. I'm like, there is no moisture in sight. Like it just, he goes, just put, just punch it in and see what happens. And sure enough, I kid you not, we went out there a week later and stuff was popping out of the ground. And a week later, the ground was covered. Like, I mean, not a hundred percent, but pretty well covered by three to four weeks by like the end of July and the first half of August, the whole field was covered and you couldn't hardly see any sunlight touching the ground. I was like, you have to be kidding me. Like it was absolutely amazing um, to where we've also seeded, you know, around Mother's Day, May, we're really, really doing a lot of warm season type crops. And what we're doing those years is um, we're, we're doing some early tillage in the spring um, for, there's some reasons why we're doing that with our, our fertilizer practice that we're doing right now. But a, a chance to do some basically weed control mechanically early in the spring. And then we will either mechanically or chemically um, control the weeds again. So like we're trying to get, you know, wild oats under control or quack grass or something along that line. And then after we've done that about a week or two after that, then we'll go in and plant our cover crop after that. So, you know, if we're trying to control grasses, we'll use clethodin or there's some kind of you know, really strong outbreak of, you know, pigweed or something like that. We'll put a 2,4-D out there and then we'll usually wait a couple weeks before we try and seed a cover crop into that, let that, you know, chemical subside and then we'll, we'll put our cover crop in it. We've had really good results doing that. Um, just trying to control, you know, get a fallow year in there, um, can, you know, break up some hard pans that we have in the soil, maybe go find some nutrients that were lost, putting this diverse cover out there. And then the way we terminate it that's worked the best for us so far is we have like basically what's called a, you know, light disc or a disc harrow. It's just basically just like a double disc. It has a few more discs per foot on the gang on it. 
And uh, ours is like, it's a Case Tandem 330 Turbo. And we'll set that to about an inch, two inches deep in the soil. And that will basically go and pinch off all of those plants. It'll mix them in, in the top inch to two inches. And that seems to get pretty good termination. We've also directly no-tilled into the cover crop too, like basically green seeded it. We had better results when we did the tillage instead of using the spray or whatever. And then hopefully by fall, you know, somewhere in there, we're getting a freeze that's knocking the stuff back and the wheat's coming up and hopefully the frost will, will kill whatever else is growing. If for whatever reason it doesn't kill it. And sometimes those radishes are really, really hardy and they're coming up the spring, they're easy enough to kill with a, you know, light 240. I will pretty, pretty easily knock them back. But those tubers get huge. I mean, we're talking like two, three foot tubers. <laughs> and they, there's a lot of starch and there's a lot of growth potential for that thing to be able to, you know, maintain its energy and overwinter. And so, but it, it leaves giant holes in the ground for moisture to go in the ground. Yeah, okay. yeah, there'll be a, a, you know, a foot, two feet in the ground and uh you know a foot to a foot and a half sticking out of the ground they're they're huge yeah i'll, I'll show you some pictures that sounds so, fun yeah um okay you did oh my last question was well sort of um about the cover crop is you said facilia mm -hmm. that's not something that i've heard always in some of these mixed cover crop blends. Can you talk a little bit about your choice of adding that in? Uh, on a whim, kind of. So we were you know, wanting to throw something else in there that uh, I think it was Keith Burns that actually mentioned it to me, but I'd seen it in a few other people's mixes of how it really helped with just diversity and biology in the soil and the pollinators also liked it. And so I'm like, okay, we'll try it. Turns out it, it worked great so for our soil type and in our situation it worked out worked out good so we've kept it in there every year now i've seen it as a, a great pollinator yeah it's a beautiful beautiful plant yep but easy to control too it's not it's not invasive so um i've also heard a little bit about cows and you know do you run cows on your cover crops or what is that how no, do you make is, this is our first year where we're running cattle on it we're actually doing a grazing trial out there on there working with the Palouse Conservation District. Um, they have a moisture meter out there where they're checking where we graze the cattle versus a check spot that um, ideally, I, I don't know if we got them both meters out there yet or not, but we're supposed to be checking where they grazed versus where they haven't grazed and seeing if we're using up more moisture, you know, from, you know, stressing that plant out, you're losing, you're losing shade and then the plants being stressed. So are you losing moisture by grazing the cows out there on the cover crop versus trying to maintain the moisture? We believe from what we've seen, we actually maintain our moisture better by having a cover crop out there versus just fallow ground. So that 2021 year was that trial year for us when we had that cover crop out there that we see in the 15th of July, that cover crop terminated it in the middle of September. And we also had summer follow but i mean we're talking like straight up rod weeded summer follow and uh seeded into that you know got the seed into moisture and stuff too but where we had the cover crop we we got a better stand where we had the cover crop than where we had just straight fallow you know you asked how we seeded the cover crop and that just with the double disc drill we had great planes double disc double disc drill i did a trial um on a research farm a couple of years back and just you know navigating the mechanics of how your seeding rates um when you have these mixed species cover crops you know getting them through the drill and at the rate you want them is its own trial <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely man that was so true like this year too i mean they do really good at sending me these mixes and how many pounds they are and what to seed it per acre and stuff and how it's going out of the drill if anybody's farmed and set their drills they know that Seed size makes a big difference. I mean, there's a rate chart on the drill and everything, but you're doing with like seven or eight different seed sizes on this. Facelia versus sunflower? Oh I my mean, gosh. Seriously. Yeah, and so, how do you make that work? I'm like, <laughs> my dad was actually running the tractor and he comes back, he's like, we're out. And I'm like, you're only half done. Like, how how are you out? You know, or it's like, and I'm, I'm looking at the rate and when I have it set, I was like, this went out way faster than I thought it was. I wanted to go a little bit heavier on the rate. I ended up going up like 30% over. So, 
you know, doing a trial calibration is, it's probably definitely worth your time. I didn't do a trial calibration. I'm like, I know what I'm doing and bumped it to the numbers I thought it needed to be and, and go, you know, <laughs> it was, this was kind of one of those years where it's just like, you know, you're doing like damage control the whole time. Every farmer knows about this. You know, you're doing damage control in the springtime. It's like, we just, we got to go, you know, to get it running, put it together, put the duct tape on it. We got to go kind of a thing. And, and, you know, one of those days we're just like, yep. All right, go. And, um, so yeah, we needed more, <laughs> more cover crop seed to finish the field. Well, that's its own part of the trying different things on the farm, isn't it? Yeah. How do you, how do you build that into your management? The time and space to try stuff. Oh yeah. Um, well for me, we have downtime in the wintertime where you spend time on YouTube and going to P and DSA meetings and learn about all kinds of crazy stuff. And, uh, you're talk to your friends and they're like, yeah, I'm going to try this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to try this. And, um, we come up with a bunch of ideas that we want to try and we, we feel we're really successful if we get about half of those implemented and we're learning to try and uh, at least me personally on my farm, I'm trying to cut it back, you know, even, you know, another 30% beyond that to where the things that we are trying that we're really trying to put maximum effort into that cover crops, one of those things that we're trying to put maximum effort into, um, cutting back our fertilizer rates is something that I'm trying to put maximum effort into. We're trying to do a lot better research on that of what we're actually doing because we're finding out we can cut back our fertilizer rates a lot more than we had previously thought with some of the stuff that we've implemented on our farm. So that's a great segue into, um, what is the most interesting thing you've learned from a past trial? Uh, the, the best thing we've, <laughs> we've learned that we've stuck with that, that we're not changing or experimenting with anymore is inoculating our seed with mycorrhizal fungi. And that was something that we did a trial on and we had some success with. And then over the years, you know, tried different products and got to a point where we're like, okay, this stuff really works. We, I, you know, one of my other friends, he tried it and had some crazy good results with it. I'm like, okay, there's something to this. And we didn't even know what mycorrhizal fungi was at the time. We're like, how does this work? And we started to learn about like, well, why isn't everybody doing this? I don't know. Maybe there's just not a lot of money in it, you know, and it's not marketed to us where unless it's like dangled in front of our nose in a giant commercial, we never know about it. And, uh, so because when we've shared the idea with people, you know, other farmers and that kind of stuff, I mean, it got, we, we joke around, we call it fairy dust. I mean, it's just this powder, you know, that we put on the seed but it has such magical properties in the soil and has really uh, changed some huge dynamics on our farm just in terms of like fertilizer usage and overall yield, crop quality, those kind of things. And um, I think it's, it's been a, just one of the biggest game changers for us long term. We don't plan on, on going away from it. We're, we're trying to figure out how to build upon that now at this point. Which crops do you primarily inoculate with mycorrhizae? Anything grasses, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, there's other crops that we inoculate too. Like the guys inoculate soybeans and alfalfa. I mean, they have their own stuff that, you know, they're trying to inoculate with that. But I mean, we're inoculating the wheat with not just mycorrhizal now, but also azobacter and fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere on our wheat. So, um, some general rules of thumb that we've heard now, you know, from going to different meetings and, and things that we've learned is you can factor in about a 10, what was that? 10% about like, if you have say 1% organic matter, you can maybe factor 10 pounds of nitrogen fixation. If you have 4% organic matter, you can factor maybe 40 pounds of nitrogen fixation on your wheat plants. And it doesn't, it's not like nodules on there, but it definitely shows up in your uh, protein that you are growing in your wheat. I mean, when we're growing, you know, on a, on a wet year, we're still doing, you know, 10, 11% white wheat on our protein on our white wheat. We're like, damn, we over fertilize this, you know, like, what happened? You know, why, why is this going on? We didn't need to put that much fertilizer on. And 
um, we're, we're hitting yield goals and stuff consistently. And so we keep cutting back our fertilizer rate and still end up having the same yield and, and proteins not going down. We're like, man, we, we need to cut back on our fertilizer some more. So there's some other factors in there that we're doing too. Like I said, we're, we're horrible scientists in isolating things because in some of these, we, we also were playing gypsum. And gypsum is one of those things that we found also really increases our nitrogen use efficiency between the calcium and the sulfur both. You know, the calcium helping make the nitrogen more available, but then also having a sulfur there too. We're working on considering going like 50-50, like to where it's like we're matching for every pound of nitrogen we're putting on, like putting on gypsum as well. So um, that when you're looking at your budgeting for, for every dollar that you're putting on in, in you know fertilizer that we're matching that with gypsum does that make sense okay most of our soils if, if you pull a soil sample we're we're deficient in sulfur and calcium especially on the canola side of it the canola's really benefited from having the the sulfur there yeah i've heard that about canola for sure yeah i mean what's the what's the only other available sulfur source that you have other than gypsum right to put out there and so you're talking about like a really high salt based sulfur and if we're dealing with low ph soils already like how else should we be getting sulfur out there and so if we have these soils that are deficient in calcium too we just need to invest in in that you know calcium sulfur component you know try and make our soils one whole moisture better and have better nitrogen use efficiency to them as we get that soil ph lower our nitrogen use efficiency goes down so if we're not having to apply as much nitrogen-based fertilizer like chemical fertilizer hopefully we're not salting out our soils as much so that goes back to that whole question that you asked me early on on you know how are you approaching your farm those are some pieces to it that that's how we're approaching it you know from a management standpoint we're trying to we're trying to manage the the input side of it, right? And not we're not going for maximum yield by throwing fertilizer at it. We're trying to really think about it from you know a long-term standpoint. If we're gonna put gypsum out there, one, we're gonna get the calcium benefit, you know, for the nitrogen use side of it, but also like if we're gonna be doing canola, hopefully having sulfur available also. This wheel that it has all the different you know, elements, chemicals that the, the plants need, you know, copper and all this. And, and calcium's tied to most of them. Well, because I think one of the things is it's a critical component of cell walls, right? And just like cellular structure in yeah. plants. So, um. so sulfur, like sulfur is one of those ones that we noticed that um, we can get better plant survivability through the wintertime if you don't have cell elongation. If you have enough sulfur, you, you don't have the cell elongation because the plant wants to grow up, right? And if it doesn't have enough sulfur, it'll just stretch those cells out and those cells are more prone to rupturing. But if it has enough sulfur, it will build more cells and more cells are stronger. You know, it's like a bunch of little water balloons compared to like one water balloon that's just stretched super thin and uh, they're, they're able to survive better. They, they survive the frost better, they survive the heat better. So yeah, they're just, they're just a stronger overall plant. Magnesium. Magnesium is one of those other ones, but do you get? Do you have a different way to get magnesium on there? I've heard crazy things on that. Well, maybe <laughs> if you do ever put some lime down, uh, then maybe it could go with the dolomitic flavor. And yeah, stuff. yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks. This is so fun. I really appreciate your sharing about some of the systems thinking that you've got. Um, in as part of your management and as you're trying all these different things. It sounds crazy talking about it. So <laughs> hopefully it's coming across here too. No, that's great. Well, you know, maybe the next time you're at one of the grower meetings, you'll uh, get to somebody will be like, Hey, I heard you on the podcast. Uh, you know, let's yeah. talk. So. Nah, we're all good. Um, we, it's, it's just, it's great to be having these conversations um, because it's also, it's not just about what you're trying. It's also about how you're trying it. Yeah. What, what sources are influencing your thinking and how you're making time for it, both in the planning stage and the implementation yeah. stage and how you troubleshoot kind of overcoming some of the barriers, um, like the seeding rate or, you know, getting it through, getting your cover crop through the drill and how, what you do with those unexpected outcomes. And, you know, um, I also heard you talk about your, um, doing the trials with the Palouse Conservation District. Is that part of the Flourish project? Yeah. Awesome. What, so what are those trials looking like on your place? 
Well, that was part of that cover crop this year that didn't turn out as good as what I hoped it was going to, right? Because of the, the chemical residual from the year before. But I, I think that the Flourish project, what they're doing, it's a real farmer-led program, right? Um, they left the rules really loose on it, and which is really cool. We just had to come up with our own trials that we wanted to do, right? And then we get basically the help from the other people to come in and help gather the data, the stuff that we don't have the time or that we don't have the skill set to do really well. We actually get help doing that to, to figure these things out. And so some of the stuff that we want to figure out on our farm, if we integrated livestock, how does that affect soil moisture in our area? We've heard stuff in a lot of other areas, how, you know, it worked great for them. And then you talk to people here, they're like, Oh yeah, it works there, but it doesn't work here. So we wanted to be able to, um, basically try and figure that out for ourselves in our area and how it works. I think that's awesome. Um, and what I also heard was that you like it because there's not a lot of rules. So you're telling me that farmers don't love programs with lots of rules. There's just, we've watched some of the NRCS stuff that has come out with some of the best intentions fall so short in areas because it, a lot of it gets, you know, led through the Midwest and, and resource concerns that they're trying to address. And they have these programs written in ways where it's just like, you know, yeah, we want you guys to, you know, implement cover crops and you, you know, the, the criteria that it has to adhere to at that, you know, point is you either qualify or don't qualify. And I, there was just a lot of logistical issues to some of these programs that didn't make sense. And we wanted to answer questions that we had in our area specifically. So. Huh. What a fun concept. Um, so what, what does the layout of those trials look like on your place? Um, the one trial, it was like 35 acres that, you know, is basically under trial per se, you know, of that 150 acre field, we took, a section that we knew that we could get water to that had um, a little bit of varying terrain. It had, we know, three different soil types in it. And to to see what that looks like over the course of a year. Um, the one thing that I, I wanted to share on this that I think a lot of farmers are up against and that we deal with with these trials that we talk about is I'm coming up on 40 years old. I know that I have, you know, 20 to 25 good harvests left in me, right? Like with, you know, good Lord willing that I have 20 to 25 good harvest left in me. And so a lot of what gets made day-to-day decision basis on our farm and, and long-term when we see these trials, we get kind of some hopes and dreams wrapped up in some of the stuff that we're trying. And I don't have solid data on the gypsum. I don't have, you know, concrete data on the mycorrhizal, but I have some theories and some experiences with it that I feel work. And so I'm choosing to invest in some of these things long-term because I want to see them work. I don't have, you know, 10 or 15 years to do trials. I think that it's going to increase stuff. And so I'm going to do it over the whole farm now, you know, for these next 20 years in hopes that it's going to work out. And I think that's what a lot of farmers are doing in, in some of these ways. And it's just, we're really limited time-wise, you know, I mean, you're, you're making year-to-year gambles on stuff, right? With the best data that you can gather at the time with your specific situation and stuff. And so some of this stuff is just kind of, yeah, it's it's going on a little bit of, you know, our own personal experiences with it. We get the best information we can, make these decisions, then put it out there and, and hopefully it's going to work long-term. And maybe, in five, you know, five years we're like, oh, okay, this isn't working and now we need to change and shift directions. So, and that goes along with that. The more you know, the more you don't know. I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What things do you do now as part of your standard management that started as trials? Oh, the one, the mycorrhizal. That was, that's the big one that comes to mind just because I tried telling guys about it. And, uh, I think it's the one thing they can do that's easy to implement on their farm that we've seen just increase soil organic matter massively, like way, way more than what we previously thought we could increase. Like going from, if I was to give guys numbers from the time I've been using it. So since probably 2014, I've gone from like a percent and a half, 2% organic matter 
across most of our farm to like three and a half, four percent organic matter across most of our farm. And that's a big shift for us in a lot of areas. You know, you talk to a Gabe Brown, well, that's nothing, you know, but a Gabe Brown, he experienced his own stuff, you know, by going to no-till and then eventually to perennials and then eventually to cattle and that kind of stuff. But I'm saying for annual crop farming in our area, limited rainfall to go from a percent and a half, 2% to three and a half, 4%, that was a big shift for us. And that, that meant massive things for us in terms of how much we were spending on fertilizer inputs year to year. And, um, being able to to have harvestable crops on years like 2021 so that was a really tough year uh, for us in our area i mean seven tenths of an inch of rain since the that was the middle of march you know clear through harvest it was seven tenths and um on that year i, I think we were somewhere still in the you know 30 40 bushel range which it was survivable for us that year you know um do you think your investment in organic matter helped buffer some of that? yeah yeah, definitely. Oh, you're like that. And especially buffering our farm just in terms of $1,000 a ton fertilizer. You know, that was something where, you know, we're, we're not putting out 70, 80, 100 units of N anymore. We're putting out, you know, 30, 40 units of N. Sometimes we're looking at some of that like maybe we didn't need to fertilize that much. We always used to see fertilizer skips in the field. Now the fertilizer skips aren't standing out as much as they used to. That's a great segue. How do you determine, <laughs> how do you determine your ROI on a new practice? Yeah. I, I had the funny one, you know, that's where you look back in the hopper. You're like, Oh, it looks like it's coming in pretty good. Right. Uh -huh. um, also return on investment also matters if um, the Russia is deciding, you know, to let Ukraine move weed out. So that makes a big, big factor on determining return on investment. <laughs> so you can make all the changes in the world. If the wheat price goes from $10 to $6, didn't really matter a whole lot now, did it? But, uh, um, well, and also what things cost too. I mean, uh, I know there's been some supply chain issues as well. And just, uh, there's been a lot of things affecting the front end and the marketing end. I think a big shift for us is when we put yield monitors on our combines, you know, and now combines come with yield monitors stuff on it. And it, it, I think it makes sense to have your yield monitor working, you know, to some degree, whether or not it's calibrated, is, I, I don't know, I don't think you have to spend a lot of time calibrating it, but you are looking for differences out there, you know, and you can see a difference in the field. The one thing I, that I will, you know, a disclaimer on this, the biggest difference that we still see today amidst all the changes that we've made on our farm, soil type still matters. So the, the, the yield data that comes across on our combine still reflect the soil maps that NRCS did, what was that, in the 70s or something like that, where they did that giant survey of soil data, and the yield maps still show that. I'm not going to go out here and make a claim saying that a guy can take a sandy ground and make it produce as well as the pollute scan. I mean, clay definitely has an effect in, in moisture retention, right? So... But I think a guy that also has clay type soils can make a soil more permeable by, you know, adding, adding calcium or gypsum or those kind of things to that soil and, and make it be able to absorb water more and not run off their field as much. Well, you won't get any argument from me about soil mattering. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, I did want to check in actually about, um, you know, as you're running the cover crops, what does your return on investment look like and how you're framing that up in terms of, you know, making those really out for you we try to keep the cost the input cost down on them where they are you know around 25 to 30 dollars an acre in terms of seed as long as we have our seed right rate or seed rate right um it uh you know at 20 to 30 dollars an acre and then of course we're taking that ground out of production for an entire year and then you know putting a winter wheat crop back in that next year but what we're seeing in terms of yield increase on that after that year one we're not dealing with the weeds as much where we've had cover crops we don't have as much weed pressure the following years um and i say years because what what we've seen on fields where we've done cover crop i mean we're seeing the benefits now um three four five years after doing the cover crop so what does that translate to in terms of you know a better yield five ten fifteen percent you know at least uh we where we had some winter wheat last year on a part of the field where, you know, it was a section that was not, not section like 640 acres, but I'm talking about a, about a section of an 80 acre field that had the cover crop versus what didn't. It was yielding 
oh, what were the numbers? Off the top of my head, I'm gonna gift this up. One was, there was a spring wheat crop, but it was 40 bushels where the cover crop wasn't and 55 where the cover crop was, so 15 bushels. And so, you know, if we had had the cover crop or not had the cover crop in there, there's a whole year where we could have had profit on there. But on that year, you know, last year where the wheat was like, you know, $10 a bushel, you're talking 100 to $150 an acre difference on that. So I feel like that more than covered the cost of the cover crop seed and the rent on the ground for that year. And we have healthier crops. Did it offset taking that field out of production that year? Maybe not, um, you know, for what we would have got, you know, a return on that. But I, overall, I think that it does. And I, I see healthier crops after doing the cover crops. It just gives it a whole year to rejuvenate and try and get some weeds under control, specifically grassy weeds, because um, that's our, you know, wheat's still our bread and butter uh, here. Winter wheat is our best way to build carbon in the soil too with the straw content. I know that we've definitely, you know, after implementing canola, canola has been a great, it's been a great crop for us, but I think that we've definitely burned up some of our, our carbon, you know, it's just, it's a way lower carbon to nitrogen ratio. So going back to heavier wheat crops, wheat, barley, that kind of a thing, we want to do more of that to build up our, our sandier soils long-term. Have you tried compost tea? <laughs> yes, we've tried compost tea. We're, we're having we're having some success with compost teas. Mm. So I will, I'm not gonna totally get into stuff, but I will say that, you know, David Johnson's talk on bacteria to, or fungal to bacteria ratios in the soil matter. And uh, we've had some good results so far, but I, that is definitely one of those things where the more that I know, the more that I don't know going forward, because I, I've, it is, you get into bio, biology, you know, like the mycorrhizal fungus, fungi stuff, that's, that's easy. The bugs in a jug is easy. Um, you can start getting into the weeds pretty deep on the biological stuff. You get into like the Korean natural farming stuff and culturing things from your area because it's better for your local environment. And I, I don't discredit any of it. There's definitely some, some research questions around compost tea with some of our collaborators that we've been thinking about. So. It can go wrong. It, it can definitely go wrong. And so I think there's, there's some big differences. If I'll, I'll say this. We have done compost tea and had good roulette with compost tea. I think that if um, people are going to experiment stuff, experiment with compost extract over the teas first, like you can get great results from brewing the teas. And, you know, I use air quotes for brewing the teas, um, but just doing the extracts are good because it, it, like time frame matters. The, the product that you're using, how you're feeding the tea matters. The extract, you don't feed it. You just extract it, put it on. Um, but but know what you're putting on and know know what's in it and know the difference between anaerobic and aerobic. Um, there's definitely some things there where it you can create a pretty toxic mix if you want to too. So there's a lot of questions I think. A in lot that of questions. Space, so, yep. Um, maybe we'll get get a chance to answer some of them from the research yeah. space too. But um, all right. Well, what's your biggest barrier to trying new things on your farm? Uh, I, I think that piece of gray matter between my ears, I, I think that, that my, my own self is kind of one of the biggest barriers to trying new things on our farm because you're trying to figure out how to implement it. How can you make it work on your operation? Right. And then eventually you just run into, eventually the work has to get done and you have to cover the ground and get on with what it is you, you got to do. And so time you know, time is one of those things, time and knowledge. And I only have so much time to absorb enough knowledge to implement what I want to implement. But I do believe that there's always a better way to do things. And so I, we're always intrigued and, and willing to learn new ways of doing things for sure. Why do you think some farmers don't experiment more often? Because they want to go fishing. I want to go fishing. I haven't gone fishing enough. Like it's so easy to do the old thing. Like, I mean, if I could just go back to chem follow and you know half my field is winter wheat and the other half is just chem follow and i cover it with my sprayer three or four times a year it would be so much easier so much easier but like i've i don't know i've gone down this other rabbit hole and i i can't go back now well you have critters too don't you 
No. Well, it just, well, so the neighbor's going to run their cattle and stuff on But uh, yeah, I don't have, we, we had had sheep at one point and, uh, I, I, I probably want to bring in sheep again. I think the sheep were really fun. We had a good time with the sheep. Nice. Yeah. Did you say you were doing a little bit of feed marketing as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're, um, just working with a, a local mill and then selling our product to them and then they're distributing it out from there, but they're wanting to source product locally and uh we've we've been supplying them they're doing well i mean it's a tough business for them to go into especially with you know as high as the the crop prices have been and so they're battling against that you know trying to you know have to buy a product high and then by the time they got to market it then the price is low you know and so they're fighting that and when they're selling to people that are raising animals a lot of times people that are raising animals they're trying to buy the cheapest stuff they can they have their own their own challenges for sure of the trials that you've experimented with, what's had the biggest impact on your farm? Again, Carol, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record on this, but if I can just get farmers to experiment with, you know, mycorrhizal fungi, like find a, a brand and supplier, you know, that, that works for you, try a few different ones and see what works because that's, that's what we did. And, um, it's just so easy to, once you figure out how to get it on and get the right ratios, just learn about it a little bit and what it can do in the soil, its ability to access FOSS in the ground. I, I would say that most farmers probably have enough FOSS tied up in their soil that they wouldn't have to put on FOSS for the next few years at least. I don't want to make any outrageous claims on this, but the mycorrhizal fungi will go and access that FOSS for them and to where they're not going to be, you know, putting more salt-based phosphorus into their soils and phosphorus is expensive too. If they could just, you know, cut their phosphorus applicate, cut it in half. I don't know, try some different things, see what happens out there. And uh, an experiment with mycorrhizal fungi, learn about what mycorrhizal fungi does, what it can do, not just to, to access fertilizer now and then make your crop more sustainable when it's not as wet out, you know, just it, those, those, little hyphae, the way they can go and access nutrients that the plant roots can't get to. They also build organic matter in the soil. So that's, I think, something that all of our soils could benefit from is, is building that organic matter long-term in their soil. Absolutely. Again, no argument over here. Okay. <laughs> um, no, that's yeah. great. Do you have a favorite um, inoculum that you like? There is a product I like, you know, and a disclaimer on that, there wasn't a lot of people in our area that there wasn't anybody that sold those products. And so I became a distributor in our area. If somebody wants to, you know, seek me out and ask me what I use, that's great. They can do that. But I want them to figure out also, you know, products that they want. If they, if they want to figure out something that's fantastic for them, that's a good thing for them to do. But uh, it, it really came down to... I don't have enough time to try every product. And so I would like other farmers to try other products out there and, and find something great too, because I know that there are so many products out there. I've, it was, it was a handful that I tried about four or five different ones. And I found one that was consistent and that gave me the results I want long-term. So we've stuck with them now, but I, I don't have time to try more products now at this point, we're, we're moving on to trying other stuff now to increase soil health too. So that sounds like a good plan. But that was um, simple. It was the most simple product. And it stayed on shelf good and it was easy to put on the wheat. So. so in that vein, what research questions would you like to see answered at the land-grant university level? And how do we best share those results? Well, that's a great segue because like with the mycorrhizal product, like I said, you know, being a distributor for that one is great. Would I switch if something better came along? Absolutely. And so I would like to see land-grant universities do mycorrhizal trials would be something fantastic to see go on, especially a wheat-based land-grant university because I know how well wheat works with mycorrhizae. I think that the farmers themselves could benefit a lot from that type of research, especially because there's so much to biology. We don't have enough time ourselves to experiment with all this different stuff. But if the universities could do some of it and, and help us with that, and because the universities know how to do real research. We're generalists. We have a hard time doing real, you know, like reduction-based, science-based research. So 
Is it the mycorrhizae versus all the other factors and yeah. you know, really comparing it if it yeah. is going to be consistent and likely to work across various fields in the region and in various years? Yeah, it works great in Colorado. How's it work here? You know, I mean, because there's products that are sold all across the United States and manufactured in different places. But what what's the best mycorrhizal strain for our area? Yeah, I think that matters. Awesome. All right, Chris. Do you have kids? I do have kids. I have four girls. Do they like to farm? They do. Yeah, they do like to farm. They, they love spending time out on the tractor and being out in the field and seeing the plants and all that. So, yeah. Do, do you think they'll farm? I hope so. Yeah. Do you I think, hope so. Do you think things will be different on your farm and in the ag space when it's their turn? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I hope that it's a positive environment. I hope that people learn to talk more and have more of these conversations and, and not be so polarized on, you know, their ideas of how farming should be, so. Great, well, we have one of your girls here with us right now, don't we? We do. I feel like we were talking a little bit earlier. Do you, um, first of all, do you consent to her voice being heard on the podcast today? I do. As her parent? I do. Okay, and legal guardian and all of that. Yep, yep. Okay. Uh, we were talking a little bit about farming and you had a question for her. So Eva, mm -hmm. in your opinion, what do you like better? Do you like farming with like tractors and machines or do you f like farming with animals more? Uh, I think I like farming with tractors more Yeah. just because they smell a lot better <laughs> and you can go on a vacation. You don't have to worry about if they have enough food or water. Okay. So that's, that's great. I, I think that's probably a shared sentiment along, among a lot of farmers. Now, your sister had a little bit of a different perspective when we were having that conversation earlier. Yeah, Charlotte, Charlotte definitely enjoys the animal aspect. The fact that they have babies and, you know, they're making noise and all of that. So, yeah. Eva, do you like the cover crops? I do. Like, I like going out and collecting all the sunflowers. And then we like to eat the radishes, so that's really fun. Are you gonna come back to the farm? Yeah. Or just just never leave? <laughs> Probably come back. It's a good plan. Awesome. Well, maybe I'll come back. Hopefully, yeah. I'll be back in like you know twenty years and be like, yeah. what are you trying on the farm? <laughs> Hopefully, you keep the legacy going. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing yeah, thank today you. and for being on the podcast. Yeah. Um, and big thanks to your dad for sharing all of his learning and journey. Oh. We've got Charlotte here. Char hey, Charlotte. Yeah. So what do you think? Do you like farming better with tractors or animals? Animals. What do you like about the animals? There's baby sheep and they're so fluffy. <laughs> yeah, so we did have sheep at one point. And uh, we might be getting sheep back on our farm again. So. Awesome. Do you think you're going to come back and be a farmer? Yeah. Definitely? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so Allison, I'm going to ask you now. Would you rather farm crops with tractors or pastures with animals? Mm. Tractors with crops. Really? Okay. All right. Why? Um, what, why is that? Because I like riding in tractors and when I, I like to drive combines oh, when okay. it's like harvest. All right. Do you like to work on tractors? Yeah. Yeah? Do so you like the wrench and the grease and all of that? Yeah. Yeah? Awesome. Except for when they break down. Mm, that's true. Do you think you're going to come back and farm when you're a grown-up? Yeah. Yeah? Awesome. Good luck. Okay, Penny, I'm going to ask you now. Do you like tractors better or animals better? Uh, animals. What do you like better about animals? Horses. Oh, you like horses. Okay. So you want to be a cowgirl? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we've got our answers. Thanks yeah. so much for sharing. Right. We'll look forward Thanks, to some Rose. future farmers. So, you really are all farming together, aren't you? Uh, for the most part, yeah. Yep. It's a good place to be. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you all for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate hearing from some of your experience and lessons learned. And Carol, thanks for what you do. This has been a great experience and you know, getting to hear everybody else's experience that they have too. That's how we really learn and keep things moving forward. So 
Thank you for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. It's, it's all about you guys. Thank you so much. As always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.